0: Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, we thank you that through it you speak to us, that we hear your voice just as clearly and truthfully today as the Israelites did when they were at the foot of the mountain of Sinai. We pray, Lord, that you will open our ears to your voice and give us hearts that are willing to obey and live as your people in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is exciting to think about the world. As we look at the world, we see something that is big and complex and confusing. There are lots of things happening. But at the same time, the world is increasingly becoming very small. Uh, Now, within about 36 hours, you can get to pretty much any place on the face of the earth. And as you get there, you're able to see amazing beauty. You're able to see incredible cultures and meet wonderful people. But also to see distress, to see chaos. Even without travelling, we can hear what's happening in different corners of the earth pretty much as it happens, can't we? On our phones, on our computers, on our television, we, we get the news by the minute. And largely we're struck by tragedy, by the terror of the world. So how do we respond to what we see out there? How do we respond to this beauty and this diversity and this challenge? What does God call his people to do? How are we as followers of Jesus to respond appropriately? The temptation, I think, is to largely just let the world out there do as it does. There's enough in our own corners of the world to keep us busy, enough to uh, take up all of our attention one of the joys of my job is, uh, is working with young people. I I'm, I'm kind of have two roles at the moment, as well as teaching mission subjects for uh, all of the student uh, population. I also direct The Bridge, which is a gap year program for 18 to 21 year olds, uh, a one year sort of mission focused program. And, uh, and as I talk to young adults in their first couple of years out of school, one of the questions that they're wrestling with is, is what am I going to do with my life? What should I study? Where should I go? Where should I live? What job should I have? This question of purpose. Why am I here? Why am I on on earth? But it's not just young people that need to think about these questions, is it? We all need to have a sense of what our purpose on earth is. Why are we here? But to understand our purpose... I think we need to understand our identity. See, why we're here, what we are to do, ultimately derives from who we are. And if we understand who we are, then that can guide us as we think about what we should do. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, God wants to speak to the nation of Israel and help them understand who they are and therefore how they should live. He wants them to get firmly in their mind what is their identity and as a consequence of their identity, what is their purpose? What should they be doing in the world? How should they relate to the world? God speaks to Israel right at the beginning of the life of the nation. As we've read, they've just come out of Egypt. I'm sure many of you know well the story that they were in Egypt as slaves. But through the plagues and the Passover, God delivered them out of Egypt. He delivered them by parting the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land and then God washed away the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. So here they were, the new nation of Israel, delivered by God, saved by God, given a new life by God. And in that context, he speaks to them. In verse 3, it says that God calls Uh, Moses up the mountain and says, this is what I want you to tell the nation of Israel. This is the, the message that I want to shape their life. And the first thing that God wants them to know is that they are his treasured possession. If you have a look at verse four, he says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. God wants Israel to remember how he has delivered them, how he has saved them. Like an eagle saves its chick falling from the nest, God has saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he's brought them into a relationship with himself. They are to live in line with his covenant. They are to obey his commands because that's how they show. That's how they demonstrate that they are his people. He says, you are my treasured possession. Their obedience is just a sign of that relationship. A treasured possession is something that we hold dear, isn't it? I'm sure many of you have treasured possessions, things that maybe you've inherited from family members, jewellery or a special gift that you've received. My wife has these fine bone china cups that she inherited from her great aunt when she passed away. And her great aunt was very precious to her. She prayed for uh, my wife's father when he was a young boy and prayed for us. And so to have these cups, they're, they're they're a treasured possession. But God says to us, You are my treasured possession, so much more valuable than a fine bone china cup. And just as God says these words to the nation of Israel, in Peter's first letter, we hear these words said to all followers of Jesus. See, just as Israel was delivered from slavery through the Exodus, we were delivered from slavery to sin and death through Jesus. And so for all people who are trusting in Jesus, God says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are god's people we have received mercy through christ but just as israel wasn't delivered by god because they were somehow an impressive nation they they didn't have wonderful gifts they were slaves they had nothing going for them so too we were not a people we had nothing that god sought and yet he showed us mercy in Jesus, he showed us grace. When I was a child, I lived in a number of small country towns. That's where my father was an Anglican minister. We were in one little town called Harden Murrumburra. Has anyone ever been to Harden Murrumburra? Oh, look at that, near Cootamundra. Population of about 2,000. It's got five pubs. I don't know why you need one pub for every 400 people, but anyway. Harden Murrumburra is in the middle of uh, properties that grow wheat and sheep. And so uh, everybody gets their livelihood from these crops and these sheep. And in a place like that, there are many pests, but one of the most common ones is these little critters, rabbits. You'd go out on properties and you would see rabbits everywhere, and they were a menace. They'd eat the crops, they'd dig up your garden, they'd damage the pastures for the sheep. And so farmers would do all that they could to try and get rid of rabbits. One day, my father, though, went out to a friend's property was helping do some work i can't remember what normal sort of pastoral visit you know fell a tree or something and he came back with this little cardboard box and he gave it to my siblings and i and he said this is for us and we opened it up and what was there a baby rabbit he said we're going to keep this as a pet now even though to all of our neighbors these things were pests this had nothing in it that was valuable And yet it became part of our family. We gave it our best food scraps and fed it water and kept it alive. And that little rabbit lasted probably three times as long as it would have if it had been in the wild. Lived about nine years. See, there's nothing about us that deserves God's grace and mercy. And yet he has loved us. And he has drawn us to himself. And he says, you are my treasured possession. We need to let that understanding of our identity shape the way we relate to the world. Because the world around us gives us all sorts of other reasons to think about our role, all sorts of other identities. What our job is, how much money we have, what marks we get at school, how we look on Instagram or Snapchat, all of these other things that define who we are in the world's eyes. Yeah, we need to tune our ears to God's voice and and hear what he says to us. You are my treasured possession. Let that shape how you relate to the world around you. Let that reality be what guides your view of the world. And so God goes on to explain to the nation of Israel what it means to be his treasured possession, what it means to be his chosen people. In verse 5, he says, uh, after reminding them that they are his treasured possession, he says, Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's our purpose. But notice what he reminds Israel of before that. He says, Indeed, the whole earth is mine. God is the God of the whole world. God is the God of every nation. God spoke the world into being. And God created man and woman in his image. All people are his. But as we look around the world, we see an incredibly diverse population I want us to just think for a moment about the population of the world. In the world, there are about 7.5 billion people. That's 7,500 million. That's a lot of people. But these people are very different, as I'm sure you know. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, about 2.5 billion, about a third, call themselves Christian. Now, we know that within that population, there are many who perhaps haven't really understood the gospel of grace... But they certainly have access to it. But then there are also about 5 billion others who follow all sorts of other religions. 1.8 billion Muslims, a billion Hindus, half a billion Buddhists, 800 million who have no religion, 900 million who follow all sorts of other religions. The world is a diverse place. And these people live in all sorts of different contexts. Now more than half the world's population live in big cities. We're getting increasingly, increasingly urbanised. And yet there are still many who live in little villages. There's nearly a billion people living in slums in big cities. But all of these different people, God says, are his. See, our temptation, I think, sometimes is to think, well, everybody has their own way of life, we need to just leave them to it. There might be nearly two billion Muslims, but we just need to let them live their life. There might be a billion Hindus, we we let them follow their faith. But God looks at this world and he says, you are mine. So that small girl that lives in a village in the state of Uttar Pradesh in India, the most populous, the most densely populated state in the world, her father pulls a rickshaw, her mother... Men's people's clothing, she, they together earn less than a dollar a day. They followed Hinduism because that's all they've ever known. And yet God says, you are mine. To that woman who lives in slums in Bangkok and has a little store. She rises early so that she can make an incense offering to the statue of the king of Bangkok, who's viewed as divine but she follows the ways of Buddhism because that's all she's ever known. But God looks at her and says, you are mine. To the businessman who works in the CBD of Tokyo, working long hours for a big multinational company, barely seeing his family so that he can have reputation in his workplace, follows the traditional faith Shintoism of Japan, but really doesn't, and doesn't know the first thing about Jesus. God looks at him and says, You are mine. I recently had the opportunity to visit this little island in Indonesia. Uh, there's about 1,500 people that live on this island. It's a tiny little place, and every square inch of the island is covered in houses. There's probably about 1,000 adults, 500 kids. We stayed with them for about three nights. There's a school on the island, but there's no hospital or doctor. There's a mosque, in fact that's the biggest building on the island, but there's no church. There are no Christians at all. Everyone on this island follows Islam. And they told us that before we had visited, they had never had foreigners stay on the island. See, even if somebody on this island wanted to know about Jesus, there's nobody they could ask. No one can tell them. And yet God looks at these people and he says, you are mine. And for all these people, God's desire is that they might know him, that they might experience his grace. We were all created to worship him. In Psalm 67, it says, may the peoples praise you, God, may all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. See, this is the cry of God's people. We can't just leave all these people in their ways. They are his, and they were created to worship him. And that's why, as God's chosen people, as his treasured possession... God calls us to be a priestly kingdom. See, in verse 5 of Exodus 19, he says, You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Now, what's a priestly kingdom? Well, it helps us to think about what a priest does. In in nearly every religion in the world that has priests, priests function as mediators. They're the go-between between people and God. So a Hindu priest helps people make offerings to the pantheon of gods. God says to the nation of Israel, you are to be a priestly kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Now what that means is that they are to function as a priest for the other nations. Like as a kingdom, they are to be a priest, a mediator. A go between between the nations of the earth and God. See, God didn't choose his people so that they might, because he loved them only. God chose Israel and called them to himself so that the nations might see his love lived out, that they might be drawn to his love. And this role of being a priestly kingdom is equally true for us as followers of Jesus. That's why 1 Peter echoes these words. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that's what it means to be God's chosen people. It's that we exist to declare his praises. We exist to let the world know about the grace that God has, that grace that moves us from darkness to light. These many people, this world that is God's, needs to hear this message of salvation and life that we have in Christ. But it's not just through our words, notice. Notice. In 1 Peter, he goes on a couple of verse later, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, or as the NRSV says, live such honourable lives among the Gentiles, among the nations, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See you through our words as we declare the praises of God, and through our deeds, as we live good lives among the nations, we help these many people that are gods. They are, his, they are They are owned by Him. We allow them to know of His grace and mercy. That's what it is to be a priestly kingdom. So how are we going? How are we going taking this message to the nations? How are we going as God's priestly kingdom? Are his people fulfilling this role? Well, it's wonderfully encouraging to look back over history and to see the way God has worked through his people to draw many to himself. The modern mission movement in many ways started in earnest with William Carey, after the Great Awakening, the end of the the 18th century. And from then we saw many, many more people going to the nations, taking this message of hope and light. And God has blessed that endeavour greatly, especially over the last 100 years. Back in 1900, the mission movement was really starting to gain momentum. But back then there was still very, very few followers of Jesus outside of the Western world. In fact, in the whole world then, there were probably 80 million evangelical Christians, 80 million people who truly understood the message of the Gospel and recognised Jesus as their Lord. 80 million. But only 5% of them were in the non-Western world. Nearly everybody was in England, America, Australia. But then if we fast forward to today, just 100 years later, that number of people who know the gospel, evangelicals, is almost 10 times that. 750, nearly 800 million evangelicals in the world. And remarkably, the vast majority of them now are in the non-Western world. See, God has brought great growth of the work of the gospel in south america in africa in asia he's doing wonderful things drawing people to himself here are some examples the nation of kenya in 1900 there were almost no christians there at all but now there are nearly 50 percent of the population are evangelicals They, they have heard the gospel and responded 20 million people the nation of brazil Evangelical population is about 26%, more than a quarter of the nation. It's the largest nation in South America. 51 million people call Jesus Lord. Or even China, the most populous nation in the world. Nearly 6% of the population of China are Christian, almost entirely evangelical. That's 75 million people. God is doing amazing things and we should give thanks because this is the fruit of those missionaries that have gone out. God has worked through his people to draw people from many, many different nations to himself. But the task is far from over. There's much more to be done. Let's think again about those 7.5 billion in the world. You can really think about this population of the world in three groups About 2.5 billion, as I said before, the blue section, are Christian. It's about a third of the world. Now, there are many of them who don't truly understand the gospel, as we said before. But they have Bibles, there are churches, there are many uh, there who can teach them. At the bottom, you can't read the words, unfortunately, but there's about 2.9 billion who have heard the message of Jesus who have Christians living among them, who have Bibles that they can access, but they are not followers of Jesus. So 2.9 billion. And they're the people that we go to work with. They're the people that live down the street. The people in our own community who follow other faiths. They don't follow Jesus, but they live alongside people who do. Part of our role as God's priestly kingdom is to be taking the message of God to them in our community, in our, in our schools. But then there's this other group, this red group. About two billion people who have never heard the message of Jesus. And the reason they haven't heard is because there is nobody living among them who knows it. Like that island in Indonesia that just has no Christian witness at all. But there are huge chunks of the world. Nations like Bangladesh, places like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan in Central Asia. Millions and millions of people among whom there are no Christians. They don't have a Bible, they can't hear the message of salvation. And these are the people that God looks at and says, They are mine. And we, his people, as his priestly kingdom, have a responsibility and and a privilege to be able to take the message to them so that they might hear this message of hope and life. But sadly, we don't send many there. What proportion do you think of all the missionaries in the world serve among this population? Very close. About 3%. That's about 12,000 missionaries in total serving among these 2 billion. That's about one missionary for every 175,000 people. That's quite a task. It's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? But there is great need. The task is not over. God is doing wonderful things and and he's demonstrated his desire to draw people from many nations to himself and to establish his church among all sorts of different communities. But there is still much work to be done. So how should we respond? What does it mean for us here in Ashfield to be God's priestly kingdom? What does it look like for us to be a treasured possession? Well, I think there are three things that we should all be seeking to do. The first thing, I think we've got these on a slide, is we should be praying. We should be praying for those who've never heard. Oh, thank you, I forgot these slides. If you see here, this is where the non-Christian population is, right? You can see all of them, the world is a bit hazy there, but this is East Asia, around Central Asia. If you go to the next slide, this is where the missionaries tend to go. Now, if we overlay those, and please excuse my terrible editing you can see that sadly many of our missionaries, most of our missionaries are going to places of need but perhaps not where the greatest need is. So how do we respond? The first thing we must do is pray. When at the end of Matthew's Gospel uh, not the sorry. The end of chapter nine in Matthew's gospel. It says that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he says to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few." And what's his command then? Pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for his harvest field. It's interesting that the first thing Jesus says isn't therefore go to the harvest field. The first thing he says is pray. And no matter who you are or where you live, as part of God's priestly kingdom, I believe that we are commanded to be praying for those who haven't heard, to be praying that God might raise up workers for this harvest field, to go to those nations where there is very little Christian witness. Pray that he might be raising up workers from our community, raising up workers from here at Christchurch in the West. And he has been doing that. And that brings us to the second task. Maybe you are someone who can go, but for many of us, that's not the case. But like me, you can be someone who sins to help raise up future workers, to prepare people to go. Are you praying that there'll be people in your church, in your congregation, in your community who God would raise up as workers for the harvest field? And he's already been sending people out. Dan and Mel Kiat, who are in East Asia. Toby and MG, who have been in South Asia. Elizabeth, who's also been working with them in South Asia. These are people from among you who have been sent out. But pray that God might raise up more and more workers for his harvest field. And do what you can to help them go. Support them as they prepare. Support them as they go. John Piper says that in response to God's mission, there are three options. You can go, you can send, or you can disobey. not a bad summary. Most of us don't go, but we must be actively involved in sending. But we do have the opportunity to go to our local community, and that's the, the idea of mission as welcoming. We live amongst many who have come from these unreached corners of the earth. God is bringing many from the nations to us and so in Ashfield 15% of the population of Ashfield are from China. Now by God's grace there are many Christians in China but still nearly 95% of the population of China don't really understand the gospel and yet we have the opportunity here to be reaching out to them, to be welcoming them and welcoming them with the gospel. Over 5% of the population of of ashfield is from nepal nepal a nation with 22 million people about the same as australia a bit less less than three percent christians an amazingly fast growing church but still much work to be done most of the nepalese in our community have not heard the gospel so even if we don't go where well, there is much we can do we can pray we can send we can welcome And we do that. We engage with the world that way because that's who we are. We are God's treasured possession, his priestly kingdom. And the whole earth is his. So let's live as God's holy people so that many might know of his glory. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have shown unmeasurable grace to us. And we know that it's your desire to demonstrate this grace to people from every nation and tribe and tongue. As we've heard, we look forward to the day when we will all be gathered around before your throne. But as we look at the world now, we know that there is still much work to be done. We pray, Lord, that you might raise up workers for your harvest field. We pray that you will enable us to be sending them, effectively sending and supporting them. And we pray that you'll give us a heart for those people in our community who have never heard the name of Jesus, that they might hear and bow before him in worship, just as they should. In Jesus' name, amen.